I think this is a great time for us as a church to continue to talk through how do we fulfill our mission and our vision in this season. Our mission as a church family is to be and make disciples of Jesus, and nothing has changed. Our mission is not contingent on our ability to gather on a Sunday morning. We can be and make disciples where we are, as we are, connecting with one another as we can. And then our vision, how we fulfill our mission, is by living as a family of sons and daughters who pursue God, brothers and sisters who practice his commands, and neighbors and witnesses who proclaim his gospel. It's identity first. We want to talk about our identity in Jesus, that we are in him. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you have this new identity. You are a son or a daughter of God. You are a brother and sister of your church family, and you are a neighbor and a witness to the world. And so we can continue to fulfill our mission and live out our vision here now in this time. In fact, I think we can do this in a unique way right now that oftentimes when life is going about as normal, it's harder to do. And so we, we have a chance to kind of pause and slow down and to pursue God as his sons and his daughters by practicing spiritual disciplines. So as we finish up the book of Matthew, I'm going to kind of wrap in talking about what it means to do some spiritual disciplines. As brothers and sisters who practice his commands, there's some commands in scripture that fit into kind of the spiritual disciplines category. And so we can practice those in a unique way in this season. And then the call to be neighbors and witnesses, or our identity is neighbors and witnesses who proclaim the gospel. There's also a unique ways that we can do that here and now in this season. And so keep that in mind. Um, with that, we're going to continue going with Matthew. So this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 19, verse 16, through Matthew 20, verse 24. It's a large chunk of scripture. I'm not going to read all of it, but I encourage you to grab a Bible or um, use your phone if you're watching this live stream on your computer and get that passage of scripture open. I'm going to reference some verses and we'll look at a few specific verses, but if you want to get the most out of this as possible, you're going to have to read that entire context, that chunk of scripture on your own um, after the sermon and then just kind of track along with me as I explain what's happening here in these passages. The title of the sermon for this morning is The Discipline of Serving. And so I want to consider our identity as sons and daughters, brothers, sisters, neighbors, and witnesses, and our activity of pursuing God, practicing his commands, and proclaiming his gospel through the lens of the spiritual discipline of serving. Last week, I mentioned a book from Richard Foster called The Celebration of Discipline. I have that here. I highly recommend this book and encourage you to take a look at that. He lists as one of the outward spiritual disciplines, serving. And Matthew 19 16 through 20, 28 is all about serving. Jesus calls us to be servants. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see three specific things here. We're going to see the call to serve. We're going to see the characteristics of Christ-like service. And then we'll talk at the end about the discipline to serve. What does it, what does it take for us to actually live out Jesus' call in his command? So that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to just jump right in um, with the call to serve. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, all the way through 20, 28, he's really, he's giving three examples. He makes three crystal clear points that his followers are called to serve others. It starts with his interaction with the rich young ruler, which is in 1916 through 1930. Let's look at that at first. And so I'll just read some of it here, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
Isn't that characteristic of how many of us live our spiritual lives and how many people in our neighborhoods and our cities and our workplaces think, what, what good must I do to inherit heaven? There's, surely there's got to be some good works, some good deeds that I can do to, to keep God pleased with me or happy with me. And if I do those, then I will be granted eternal life. That's what this rich young ruler is thinking through. Verse 17, And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I'm going to read the end of this section here. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, We have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brother or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And that last verse there, verse 30, is key to the entire context of this section. In all three accounts, Jesus closes these stories with that word, with, with that teaching, that those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. It's this crystal clear call for those who would follow Jesus to understand that their status in life, that their call in life, that their commission in life is to be a servant of others. He calls out to the rich young man, and, and, and he encourages him to, to leave everything and to follow him. And I'm actually going to come back to this story at the end here, because there's some unique stuff going on in this interchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler that that will kind of help us to understand the discipline that it requires to serve. And so I'm going to come back to that story. What I want you to notice for now is, is how Jesus closes it there in verse 30. That many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He uses this first story, this interaction with the, the rich young ruler, and then what he teaches the disciples to make this point that in my kingdom, you are to serve others. And then it goes on to chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, and Jesus gives them this story. Verse 1, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like, and so he's giving a parable here to his disciples. I'm not going to read the entire passage here, but what Jesus, the parable that he gives them is he says that there's this, there's this boss, this, uh, this business owner who employs people to go out into the fields. It's an agricultural business, and so in the morning he employs a work crew and he sends them out, their, their day, day laborers, hires them in the morning, sends them out into the fields. They work all day, and towards the end of the shift, towards the end of the day, he finds some more people staying around without work. He hires them to go to work and puts them to work in his field for the last couple hours of the day. 
The day ends, the workday is over, and this business owner pays everybody who worked for him throughout the day the same amount. Those who started in the morning, naturally, they think it's unfair that he would pay the people who worked only a portion of the day the same amount as those who he paid the entire day. And Jesus here is using this parable, this story, to show that, that God is full of generosity. And also, those who are last in the eyes of the world, those who didn't contribute as much as those who think they contributed some, they're actually the ones elevated in the kingdom of God. Look at the end of the story with me here in verse 14 and 15. The, the, the owner, the, the business owner, the boss says, Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. And so he's saying, I gave to those who only worked for a small period of time, the same that I gave to you who worked your entire life or, or who worked the whole day to earn this wage. Verse 15, he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So Jesus is using this parable to, to show that God is generous, that God lets people come into his kingdom in the last hour, that you can live a life of serving God. You can, you can spend your entire life as a Christian, and at the end of the day, your last breath, or when Jesus returns, your reward is the same as the person who receives Christ on their deathbed. As the thief on the cross, if you, if you remember the story when Jesus is on the cross and the thief on the cross says, remember me in paradise, and Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus isn't playing favorites. He's not prioritizing those who have done a lot of good in his name. He's giving equal pay. He's giving equal access to anyone who would come to him and, and, and surrender their lives to him, even if that's in your very last moment. And again, verse 16, he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And then the last story here, verse 17 through 19, Jesus reminds them that he is going to be killed, to be crucified, and he will willingly give his life over to the, the Jewish leaders and also the, the Roman officials who will crucify him. And then verses 20 through 28, um, one, of, one of the moms of the disciples, it says, verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, they believe this is a lady named Salome who's often with Jesus and his disciples. She's actually there, uh, one of the women who discovers the empty tomb along with Mary. Um, she's possibly Mary's sister. And, and she, so she's, she's tight with Jesus and his disciples, and two of her sons are Jesus' disciples. And she asks Jesus if her two sons can be in the seats of honor, the right and the left in the kingdom. Really what she's doing is she's picking up on what Jesus said at the end of chapter 19. If you look at chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so this mom of the disciples, she's a, she's a great mom, right? She thinks her boys are amazing. She's like, they... They're better than all the other guys. They should get the seats of honor. And she remembers Jesus saying that anyone who's left everything to follow me, the disciples, my two sons who gave up everything to follow this rabbi, to follow this teacher, he's already promised them this, this, this prominent place in the new world. And so she asks, when that time comes, can they have the two most prominent places here? And Jesus follows up by asking if they're able to continue to follow him even unto death. And, uh, and they say they do, and then there's this dispute, there's this fight between the disciples. The rest of the disciples are jealous of, or, or they're mad at these other two disciples and their mom for asking Jesus to give them a seat of prominence. There's this little feud among the disciples. Look at verse 24 of chapter 20. 
It says, and when the 10 heard it, so there's 12 disciples, two of them wanted the place of prominence and they had their mom fighting their battle to ask Jesus to give them the place of prominence. And so two of them, and then the other 10, when they heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them. Here's, here's really the crux of this entire passage in these verses right here. Jesus called them and, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here we move from the call to serve. In, in this entire context of this, these passages, in all three stories, Jesus is ending with this idea that the first will be last and the last will be first. And that his followers are called to serve. That's the first point. That moves us into the second thing that I want to touch on is Christ-like service. What are the characteristics of serving like Christ? If we see clearly in these passages that Jesus is saying that if you would come and follow me, your life is to be reoriented from the world. I mean, it's so clear. He says the, the Gentiles, the, the way of the world is that those who are in power, those who are in leadership, those who are in authority, it's kind of this top-down authoritarian structure. In fact, the way of the world, and particularly in this culture, it was those who are in positions of authority and leadership, they had servants doing everything for them. They had this privileged status. And Jesus here is turning everything upside down. He's saying, that's not how it is in my kingdom. I am calling you to serve. And then he gives us this, this example of what it looks to serve like Christ. To serve like the world is to expect other people to do things for you. It's, expect them, it's to expect them to use their God-given gifts to help make your life, your empire, your kingdom, your business, your world better. And Jesus is saying, the attitude of my followers is to flip that around and say, God has wired and empowered me in such a way to use my gifts, to use my talents, to use my passions to serve people in need. Our job as Christ followers isn't to find people to use their gifts to help us fulfill our call, our destiny, our gifts, our passions. Our call as Christ followers is to use whatever God has given us to help serve other people and to help to see them flourish. That's the essence of it. I love how um, Richard Foster, again in his book, Celebration of Discipline, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more here in a minute, he, he reminds us that that to be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that it's not, Jesus isn't calling us away from authority structures here in leadership. And he says sociology will prove this, that you can't, you can't thrive, nothing can survive without some level of leadership and some type of authority. Jesus isn't undoing leadership and lines of authority and submission. He's just turning them upside down. Richard Foster said, Jesus, Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rules of the that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so with you. See, he, he's saying you're just not to lead and to, to set up your structures in the same way as the world. And I think Foster rightly makes the point in his book, Celebration of Disciplines, he says Jesus' point isn't to do away with authority structures. There's always structures of authority and leadership, but his point is to completely redefine leadership as being about the humble service of others rather than the privileged status of being served. 
So that's what was going on in the context to which Jesus was speaking. And, and Matthew, our author here, he was a tax collector. And so he grew up in the school of kind of using authority and structure and leadership to control people. And Matthew was working underneath, he, he was a Jew, but he's working underneath the Roman government to, to raise taxes and to collect taxes. And they were using their authority to unjustly tax people and to skim it off the top. And Matthew, as a tax collector, he would do that. He would use his authority with the, the people of the land. He would say, here's what you owe for taxes, and he would jack up the price. He would give to the Roman government their portion, and he would keep some for himself. Now he's given up his way of life. He's abandoned his life as a tax collector, and he's following Jesus. And Jesus is teaching him, that's not how it works in my kingdom. It's, a kingdom. it's an upside-down kingdom. And so the call for us as Christ followers, Christ-like service is to, to allow God to reshape our perspective and to reorient our life so that we're using our gifts to serve. Again, in the book Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster gives a helpful grid um, of the difference, kind of the characteristic of Christ-like service. What does it really look like? And he compares self-righteous service and Christ-like service. And, and I thought this was really helpful, so I want to go through this really quickly. Some of this is from his book, and some of it is I kind of added in some of my own flavor and reworded some of his things. But I think this is really helpful uh, for us to consider what's the difference between kind of world-like service or self-righteous service and Christ-like service. And he makes a few good points here. The first one is that self-righteous service is for applause, and Christ-like service is from approval. Here's what that means, that Christ-like service, it, it keeps in mind that we are sons and daughters of God, that he's adopted us and that he loves us, he's for us, he's already approved us by the work that his son Jesus Christ did in our place on our behalf. As we've gone throughout the book of Matthew, we've seen God the Father speaking over Jesus, you are my son and with you I am well pleased. Church, if we're in Jesus, that's God's posture and God's attitude towards us. God actually looks at you, and through, through your faith in Christ and your new identity in Christ, God says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and with you I am well pleased. And so we serve others in need from approval, not for approval or not for applause. And Foster makes a point that oftentimes kind of self-righteous service, it's, it's wanting people to know about what's been done. It's wanting to get accolades. It's wanting to be known, whether it's a kind of a a business wanting to be known for being very, um, for providing a lot of volunteers or um, how much money they give away, kind of the self-righteousness is you want other people to notice your service and true Christ-like service comes from the approval you already have from God your Father, not needing approval or applause from others. Second one here is Christ-like service often flows from strategic plans. Uh, Self-righteous service flows from strategic plans where Christ-like service comes from the Spirit's promptings. Now, the point isn't that strategic plans are always bad and wrong. But the point that he makes in the book is that oftentimes businesses or even churches can get caught up in doing analytics and trying to figure out, like spending far too much time on their strategic plans, trying to figure out where to use their time, where to invest their money. And really what we see in the life of Christ and the disciples is that genuine Christ-like service comes from the Holy Spirit opening up our eyes to the needs around us and us responding in the moment. It doesn't come from being a part of a church that knows all the needs in their city and has this incredible organizational structure to meet all of those needs. It comes from being a part of a church with people who have the Holy Spirit living within them 
And they're keeping their eyes open. They're keeping their ears open to hear from the Father. Our eyes are open. We see the needs around us. We're, we're listening to the Father's voice. Our hearts are in tune with God. And we know, we see things, and we think, I just feel this prompting to go and do that for this person. I see that person struggling. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go help. And I can't tell you how encouraging and, and helpful this is for me because as a pastor of a church, I'm often thinking like, how do we mobilize our church? How do we get our church together? And we have so many amazing people in our church and our communities who want to serve. And oftentimes, very well-meaning, they, they come to me or to the church and they're like, hey, what's the church going to do for outreach? What kind of outreach program are you going to start? Or, or how can we all do this together? And, and I feel the pressure to sit in my office and come up with a strategic plan to get the 300 people who call Park Community Church their home, mobilize to go and do something. And honestly, as I consider the life of Jesus, I think we are stronger as 300 dispersed people listening to the Holy Spirit, following the Holy Spirit's promptings. I mean, yeah, every now and then, I mean, come up with a strategic plan. And I've heard of churches like taking a Sunday off and they go out rather than worshiping on a Sunday together, they go and they serve their city. And, you know, that requires a lot of strategy, a lot of planning. I don't think that's bad or wrong. But I think the strength of the church is a scattered people following the Spirit's promptings. And church family, we can do that so well right now. That's really all we can do. You know your neighbors. You know what their needs are. You know your coworkers. You know what their needs are. You know your spheres of influence. You know what their needs are. And so abide in Christ. Listen to the Spirit's promptings and go and do it. The next one here, the, uh, the third one is um, self-righteous service is done in man's limited energy and Christ-like service in God's power. I think we all, we all know the difference there, right? Hopefully you've tasted what it's like to serve in God's power, where it's life-giving, where it's energizing. And you may be tired and worn out at the end, but, but there's something that happened in your spirit where you just knew that was good and right versus self-righteous service where it's like you're trying to muster up your own energy. You're, you're being burnt out by serving. And so keep those two in mind. Next one is self-righteous service comes with tribal allegiance and Christ-like service with indiscriminate love. Oftentimes, self-righteous service is thinking, like, who are my people and I want to serve them? Or who can I form an allegiance with or an alliance with and this will be good? It, this often happens within churches, within businesses, within politics, where we kind of pick certain issues that we want to support or that we want to serve or that we want to be a part of. And we're, we're really creating these tribal allegiances and Foster makes the point, and we see this throughout the scriptures, that Christ-like service is done with indiscriminate love. It's poured out to anybody who's in need, whether that's, whether that's a refugee in your neighborhood, whether that's an illegal alien, whether that's somebody on the different side of the political spectrum as you, whether that's somebody of a different faith. It's not done with tribal allegiance. It's done with indiscriminate love. We see Jesus doing this over and over and over again in the Gospels. He's serving people in need, Jew and Gentile alike, rich and poor alike. I mean, his disciples, some of them come from more wealthy backgrounds and some of them come from poor, from poor backgrounds. He's pouring out, he's serving others with indiscriminate love. Next one is self-righteous service often comes with def definitive agendas where Christ-like service also often comes with dependent prayer. And again, he's not making the point that agendas are bad, that you should never have an agenda, but, 
oftentimes it's a definitive agenda. It's like, here's our goal, here's our plan, we have a strategic plan, we have a purpose, and so this is what we're going to do. And no one can tell us otherwise. Where Christ-like service, and again, we see this all over in the scriptures and uniquely in the Gospels, Jesus is continually abiding with the Father. He pulls himself away from crowds to spend time in prayer with God. He gets his marching orders from God, not from his strategic plans and his definitive agenda. Not from the alliances that he's trying to create with others through, through service projects that really have an agenda. He, he's saying, God, tell me what to do. Give me my marching orders, and I will do it. And empower me as I go. And then the last one here, self-righteous service is often determined by our moods, where Christ-like service is directed by obedience. Really, as we abide in Christ and as we want to serve like Christ, we're, we're, I'm guilty of being determined by my moods because I'm often self-righteous. Pastoral confession online. But I want so badly to be the type of person who serves like Christ. I want to do what's right and good out of obedience to my Father, out of a command to following Jesus, dependent in prayer, indiscriminate with love, in God's power, from the Spirit's promptings, and from God's approval. And so, church, I think this is a great grid, and we see a lot of these. It's less explicit in Matthew chapter 19 and 20, but just as you read the Gospels, you will see these, these two things at play. Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're doing the self-righteous service. And Jesus is doing Christ-like service, and he's calling us to do the same. In fact, we see this kind of as we come down to the end here. So we've talked about the call to serve. It's clear in these texts. Jesus calls his followers to be servants of others. We've talked about the Christ-like character of serving others, what it actually looks like to serve. And so lastly, I want to I close down by talking about the discipline required to serve. And kind of as we do this, kind of even in this, this story here, let's come back to the rich young ruler as we close down this morning and, and consider these two charts, these two different ways of serving, self-righteousness versus Christ-likeness. And in this, we will see the type of discipline required to serve. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He's thinking about an exchange system. And in fact, this is the Old Testament teaching that here's all the law, 613 commands of God for the, for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Follow these laws and then you'll be righteous. Well, the reality is nobody could follow those laws. But this guy has done a good job. And so he's saying, God, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you are God, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. And the fact is he's done a really good job. I mean... Jesus tells him um, that if you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, which ones? Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the rich young ruler, verse 20 and 21, or 20, he says, I have kept all these. What do I lack? I've done it. I've disciplined myself to serve. I've served others. I've done what you're calling us to do. What do I lack? And Jesus, in verse 21, he says, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. It's interesting what Jesus does here is he points out the commandments of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. He points out the other word commandments, the serve other commandments that this guy has done. And then in Matthew chapter 22, 
verses 37 through 40, Jesus gives the disciples and his followers the greatest commandment. He says, the greatest commandment, everything hinges on this. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus here gives the rich young ruler these other word commandments. He says, do all these things. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And, and the rich young ruler says, check, I've completed that. I've done that. And Jesus turns it and he says, well, then if you want to be perfect, sell what you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And really what he's doing there is he's testing this rich young ruler's allegiance to him, his love for him. See, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament are God word. They're about our relationship with God. It's, it's have no other gods before me. And then the first part of the greatest commandment is to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind. This man hasn't done that. He's been a morally good, a morally upright servant of others, but he's not doing it from abiding in God. He, he's doing it from a trying to earn his righteousness and earn his status with God. And in fact, he's idolizing his possessions. He's idolizing his stuff. He's holding it back and he's saying, well, I've given the right portion according to the law. I'm serving others. I'm doing good. I'm a social do-gooder. And Jesus is saying, yes, but your heart is, is far from me. You haven't given your heart. You haven't given up everything to follow me. And, and then in the end of chapter 20, again, at the end of our text in chapter 20, Jesus says, kind of connecting these two thoughts here. So Jesus is calling the rich young ruler to not just do good for him, to serve, the discipline to serve, but he's calling the rich young ruler to have a heart for him and to serve out of that heart for him. And then again, at the end of chapter 20, verses uh, 24 through 26, Jesus says, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and who would ever be first among you must be your slave. Here's the key. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, church family, the, the, the true discipline to serve others in the name of Christ is to understand Jesus's sacrifice and service to us. The discipline required for you to serve like Christ doesn't come from mustered up willpower. It flows from communion with Jesus, the one who served you by giving his life as your ransom. That's what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, you're called to follow me and then to go out and be a servant like me, but you can't serve in your own power. You can do some temporary good in your own power. I mean, there's people who aren't following Christ who are doing good. They're, they're doing good works. They're contributing to the common good. Praise God for that. But it has no eternal value, no eternal worth if it's not done out of an abiding relationship with Jesus where you're communing with him and it's an overflow of the heart. And so that's my reminder to us this morning. I feel like that's what God wants to remind us of, that as we seek to be people who practice spiritual disciplines, they start by us having communion with him, by us having hearts for him. Again, in Matthew 22, look at it with me just a few pages over. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. And a teacher of the law asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. And so Jesus' invitation to us is that we would come to him, that we would receive his love, that we would keep in our minds, as Matthew 20, 28 says, that he came, God in flesh came, not to be served by us, but to serve us and to give his life up as a ransom. And when we get that right, when we keep that in mind, when we commune with him, that motivates us and that moves us to serve others in the name of Jesus.